and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back or welcome to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. If this is your first time here, we're glad to have you here. If you've been here before, welcome back. Uh, This is an exciting podcast and this is an exciting episode that we have for you today. Really grateful for today's guest. But before I get to him, I want to just introduce myself. I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. As an executive coach, I do one-on-one coaching for all kinds of executives from the C-suite level, director level in different industries and different fields. And then I also go into organizations and provide experiences, workshops for their people to help develop them with what we call strong skills, things like emotional intelligence, communication, leadership, teamwork, all that sort of stuff. It's what we're really passionate about. And we got a great team that executes on teaching those skills. In the sports arena, I work as a mental performance coach where I work with athletes and sports teams, sports coaches to help them bring out their best. And recently I also became an author. So in October, uh, my new book, Shift Your Mind came out. Hopefully if you have heard me talk about in the past, you felt inspired to go pick it up and hopefully you are enjoying it or have enjoyed reading it. Uh, if you have not heard of the book, uh, we'd be honored if you went over to Amazon and picked up a copy. You can also get the audio version via Audible over there and the ebook version as well for those of you that like to read on Kindle. Uh, So thanks to everybody who continues to support the podcast and the book as well. If you enjoyed today's conversation, we'd appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review, left us a rating. Hopefully it's five stars. And if you like the book, go over to Amazon and write us a review. Both of those things, you'd be amazed to find out how it helps us expand our reach and gets these conversations and this content into as many ears, hands, and eyes as possible. So once again, thank you all for your continued support. And now to today's guest. Coach Eric Musselman has been coaching, and it's a different kind of coaching than the coaching I do. He's a basketball coach, and he is a basketball coach through and through. He started his coaching career early, and he's going to share his journey with you all today. Today, he is the University of Arkansas head men's basketball coach, but he's also coached in the NBA. He coached as the head coach for the Sacramento Kings and the Golden State Warriors, and he coached at the collegiate level with the University of Nevada and really helped them thrive as a program while he was there. So this conversation's certainly going to get into coaching, the art of coaching, how he thinks about coaching and leadership and building a team. And Eric is certainly a hardworking guy and his attention to detail is pretty obvious in this conversation and how intentional he is with how he sets up his teams and how he thinks about coaching and how specific he is about the mental side of basketball coaching. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Coach Eric Musselman. Coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I've heard a lot about you over the years from mutual friends and uh, excited to chat with you. I enjoy following you on Twitter. For those that don't follow Coach on Twitter, he's a great follow there and uh, really is always sharing content and information that I think people would find useful. So a shout out to you and, and your Twitter handle uh, right from the get-go. But uh, I would love to start with your upbringing because I know basketball's in your blood a bit, um, but give us an idea of what life was like for you as a kid, paint the picture for us, and I'm sure we'll riff on basketball quite a bit in this conversation as well. 
No, thanks for having me on, Brian. I mean, I think, you know, growing up, um, you know, my father obviously was a coach uh, at first, you know, when I first came into the world, he was coaching at Ashland College and then got a job at the University of Minnesota. So um, the time that I can remember is while he was at the University of Minnesota going on road trips to Big Ten schools. And, um, you know, my mom would would drop me off um, after school at Williams Arena, I would watch practice. I would shoot after practice while my dad had staff meetings. And then when I was done shooting, I'd go up and, and kind of sit in the film room with him. Um, and then we would go home and, and I'd wake up the next morning to my dad and I highlighting uh, box scores from the newspaper, whether it was Major League Baseball or NBA box scores. And um, then we moved to San Diego and, and my dad coached in the ABA uh, for the San Diego sales. And, and, and I was a ball boy then. And, um, you know, just grew up, you know, not really watching cartoons or in a sandbox, but, but kind of hanging out in the locker room and, and a gym and, um, really interesting, which my mom has pointed out several times when I was a ball boy, I did not want to be a ball boy for the home team or my dad's team. I wanted to be a ball boy for the opposing team in their locker room so that I could hear all these different pregame speeches and I could hear what happened postgame um, for all these different NBA teams. Um, and this was when my dad was coaching the Cleveland Cavaliers. So how, how old were you when, when you said that? That was in 10th grade. So 10th, 11th and 12th grade, I was a ball boy for the Cavs. Um, and I always was the attendant um, in the opposing locker room. and. I didn't want to rebound for the Cavs players. I wanted to rebound for the opposing team. And I'll tell you one, 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 one time I came in, we were playing the Celtics um, and my mom had dropped me off at about three 30 in the afternoon. Cause I wanted to get some shots up before the first bus came uh, for, for, for the Celtics, which usually was around five o'clock for a seven or seven 30 tip off. Larry bird was already in the arena. He was running the steps uh, in the Cleveland Coliseum. Um, and then he got shots up and finished his whole routine before the first bus of rookies and, and 10th, 11th, and 12th roster players showed up at the arena. So at a really young age, I, I understood or I saw what work ethic for a superstar player looked like. Such a cool story. And people think of Larry as like not a physical like freak or specimen. Um, and I just was talking about Larry bird last sunday and i was telling my friends gosh he would be dominant in today's nba with just the spacing and um you know his ability to shoot his ability to pass i mean all of those skills um you mentioned that you got insight into his greatness were you also thinking then that you'd want to coach and i'm curious what other nuggets you might have picked up as you observed other coaches and and other things as you were either in the locker room or you know, rebounding. Um, so it's a two-part question. One, were you already thinking that coaching was something you wanted to do at, in 10th grade? And two, were there any other, uh, was there any other wisdom or nuggets that you picked up from, from that time? Yeah, I would say that probably, you know, I, I always heard my grandmother on my, on my father's side talk about how my dad had written her a letter when he was in sixth grade that he wanted to be a coach. Um, and so when I kept hearing that story, I think from sixth grade on, I started having it in the back of my mind, like, wow, uh, my idol, my best friend, my father knew that he wanted to coach in sixth grade. I better start thinking about it. So I would say even from sixth grade, at least it was kind of going through my mind that, you know, hey, this coaching um, thing, I need to start thinking about it. I almost kind of felt like, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but I felt like I needed to kind of know what I wanted to do at, at, at a much earlier age, maybe than a lot of my friends, because I heard that my dad knew at such a young age. So I would say from, you know, sixth grade on, at least it was in the back of my mind. And for sure, when I got to college, um, because I played for two different coaches and they were two contrasting styles of coaches that, that, it, that I was fascinated with the coaching world. Um, and then, you know, as I look back on, um, you know, being a ball boy, just so many different personalities from a coaching standpoint. Um, some of the coaches really, really laid back. Um, you know, guys like Gene Shue, um, you know, laid back, 
casual. Um, and then, and then, and then the fiery coaches like Kevin Lockery. Um, so I, I think that there's just so many, you know, when you're a ball boy and you can be in a locker room at halftime and hear some coaches, uh, talk in almost a whisper tone. And then there's other coaches that are yelling and screaming. And then there's other, uh, locker rooms that are kind of player led. And then there's other locker rooms where players weren't focused and, the interesting thing, really, Brian, even at that time, I mean, I, I remember a player smoking a cigarette um, at halftime of a game. So just a really completely different uh, time frame as far as what we're seeing today. Obviously, there's no cell phones in a locker room pregame or postgame. Um, guys listening to music, there really wasn't that going on at the time. I think the focus prior to a game or even two hours before a game when I was a ball boy was, was much more of a serious tone maybe than what it is today. What was your dad like as a coach? Uh, I would say during a game as competitive as probably the most competitive person that I've ever been around um, had more of a will to win than anyone I've better, ever been around. The only uh, competitor that I've been around um, like my father, and I would say fierce competitor, uh, would be when I went worked for the Memphis Grizzlies. Jerry West, um, as a general manager, was by far the most fierce competitor that I've ever been around. Uh, my first week on the job as an assistant coach with the Grizzlies, um, I was passing the basketball um, to Scott Adubato, who was also an assistant coach. Uh, and Dante Jones, we were working out and the phone rang, um, the, the public relations phone rang right at center court. One of the ball boys grabbed it and said it was Jerry West and wanted to talk to Scott Adubato. Um, and he just lit into Scott about why are you working on certain drills with Dante Jones? Well, it was about, I don't know, 545 for a 730 tip. And Jerry West sat in his suite. I didn't know it. He sat in his suite and waited prior to the first bus of every opposing team pulling up because he wanted to scout players and how they warmed up. And he took mental notes of every team that came in and played the Grizzlies. And, you know, so you start understanding the preparation that people put into that, that have success. You mentioned your dad being uber competitive and you mentioned Jerry West. What, what are you like as a coach? Um, I would say, you know, my first college coach was Jim Brevelli. Um, and Coach Brevelli had played it at the University of San Francisco. And he was really, really laid back. And he never raised his voice maybe twice a season. Um, you know, I would sit out by the pool as a freshman, do my homework, and then go in and practice with sunscreen on and um, he would walk by me at the pool and ask how class was going. I loved it. Um, and then we, you know, he went on, went back to the University of San Francisco and coached. We had made the NCAA tournament my freshman year. Coach Hank Egan came and Coach Egan was from Air Force. And so, you know, completely contrasting styles. I, I no longer sat out by the pool prior to practice. Um, that was not allowed. Um, but it's interesting because I loved playing for Coach Prevelli. Coach Egan was much more challenging. But then when I get my first head coaching job uh, at, at the NBA level, um, you know, who do I reach out to was Hank Egan. And Hank Egan, interesting enough, had coached Greg Popovich at Air Force. He had coached Mike Brown at the University of San Diego. Mike's obviously been the head coach of Cleveland and and um, and so for that and the, and the Lakers. So he was around uh, guys that wanted to hire him. And to think that Hank Egan worked for myself, Pop and Mike Brown is really, really interesting. So I would say I loved playing for the laid back guy. Um, but then when it came time to who I was going to hire and work with me, I went with Coach Egan because he, Coach Egan was phenomenal in practice and really detailed. And Coach Bravelli was phenomenal in games. Um, and so I learned that, like, as a coach, you've got to be over-prepared for practice. Got that from Coach Egan. 
but Coach Brevelli was was absolutely insanely good um, at picking out matchups and 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 having a, a an in game adjustment effect from the sidelines. As I'm hearing you talk, and and I I'm gonna go again and sort of try to tease out what how you see yourself as a coach, but perhaps we'll riff on this and then we'll circle back to how how you think of yourself as a coach. I, I wrote this book, and I think you're gonna get a copy of it from a friend of ours, and. Um, but essentially I talk about the mindset for preparation being different than the mindset for performance. As I'm hearing you talk about Jerry West, uh, who, by the way, for those that don't know, is the freaking logo of the NBA. I mean, it's just like insane. Uh, and one of the all time greats as a basketball player. And I think what's also special about him is, and an all time great when it comes to being a general manager and not everyone's able to do both of those types of things really well. Uh, so he's one of the people I'm fascinated by and struggled with mental health and depression and has been open about that. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. We could probably do the rest of the podcast on analyzing armchair psychology, Jerry West. But the one thing that thread that I'm going to pull on here is Jerry with the assistant coach and, and Dante was being perfectionistic, right? We need to do things a certain way. The attention to detail was so meticulous in how he was approaching that. And I'm hearing you talk about Coach Egan as being perfectionistic, like things need to be a certain way. It's not okay for you to come into practice with suntan lotion on. You need to take this seriously. It's got to be work. And then the other coach that you played for, you're saying he was great at adapting and he was able to, you know, play basketball. He understood that it was an art and adjust and, and move. So in my book, I'll give you two of the shifts that I talk about. So the book's called Shift Your Mind. And basically the idea is that your mindset for preparation is different than your mindset for performance. So in preparation, we should be perfectionistic and in performance, we should be adaptable. And if we're trying to be perfectionistic in performance, it can hold us back from seeing possibilities and probably narrow our focus too much. Um, and by the way, if you're just always adapting in preparation, you miss the little details and the nuances that allow you and give you permission to be adaptable. And, and same thing with work and play. So, for preparation, it should be about work. You should be, this is a job, do your job, really drill down on this. But you play basketball. You don't work basketball. It's still a game and it's meant to be played. And so as I'm hearing you talk about Jerry and, and these other coaches, it seems like there's this dynamic between work and play and perfectionistic and adaptable. And I'm curious for you how you think about that, if that resonates with you. And maybe this is a good opportunity to think about how you, how you show up for preparation and performance as well. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating because so my father was um, probably as detailed as any person that I've ever seen. Um, practices meticulous to the minute, um, but yet when it came to our game prep, he had incredible flexibility. Um, we were getting ready to play the Lakers. And we had spent two days going through our prep work and the day of our game at shoot around, my dad walked in and said, Hey, we're going to have our seven foot three center, Randy Brewer, who had no mobility whatsoever. Laterally, we're going to have Randy Brewer guard magic Johnson, the LA Lakers point guard. And I was an assistant coach along with Tom Thibodeau. And I looked at coach Thibodeau and I said, why are we doing this? It's like, Kareem's on the other end. Like, why would we not use our 7-3 center on Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? And my dad said, I'm going to teach you guys a lesson tonight in the game. And I'm going to take away Magic's post-up game because there's no way he can post up our 7-foot-3 center. And we're going to force Magic to do what he doesn't do great, and that's shoot the perimeter three-point shot. We're going to back off him. We're going to use our seven foot three center to use his wingspan, get in passing lanes um, and take away all post-ups. And it worked. And what a, you know, a light bulb goes off for both coach Thibodeau and I, because it was so outside the box to have your center guard, the other team's point guard. And one of the greatest point guards of all time being guarded by, maybe one of the least mobile players in the history of the NBA and Randy Brewer. Um, and so I do think that if, if you are detailed and your team understands defensive rotations and where the help defense is and exactly where your footwork needs to be off the ball, when you do something really, really creative, 
like that, you already have the sound fundamentals um, built into your system that you're able to have some creativity, whether it be in-game um, or whether it's just playing your normal schemes. I'm hearing you talk and I hear the word competitive a lot. And I think about this NBA playoffs that hopefully people are watching. It's been super enjoyable. Um, and the Miami Heat are what comes to mind. And you're watching Jay Crowder and Jimmy Butler and Tyler Hero and Bam and these guys, I could just keep going. They're just competitive. And you hear them talk in the vocabulary that they use is you hear that word over and over again. And you use that word to describe your dad. From the people that I know that know you, they would say that you are uber competitive, which once again, I think we'll get to here. Um, Jerry West, Larry Bird, the people that you've referenced, uh, the coaches that you worked for, how do you define competitive? Like go, go deeper with that word for me and how, how you think about it. I think one, like right off the top, like will to win. So that doesn't just mean will to win a game. It could be like, what's your will to win in a drill? Um, you know, how competitive are you if you're just doing a shooting drill with a teammate? Are you trying to win that? Um, I mean, when I was in elementary school, there was a game called Pac-Man. Um, and they had those games in certain restaurants and stuff. And my dad would sit and play Pac-Man until he beat the top score on the machine. And literally, I mean, I, I remember one time we were in the place for all, over an hour, him playing Pac-Man, trying to beat that score. Um, you know, like when you play, I think, like, think about going to a park and there's three games deep where you have to sit out if you lose. Uh, it's, it's so interesting and fascinating to watch how certain people, you know, will dive on an outdoor court to get a loose ball because they don't want to have to sit three games. And then other guys are perfectly content to take bad shots in a pickup game. And I know growing up, um, like to me, playing pickup ball, I would get back in my car leaving playing pickup ball with the score in my mind. Like, all right, I went four and one today. Um, and, and I think some of it can be taught, but I do think that, you know, when I watched my two sons grow up, I could tell in third grade, which kids were competitive. And then you watch them in high school and those same three kids in third grade CYO were the three kids that were the most competitive in high school. Um, and so to me, it's been fascinating also being a father and watching two sons play three sports and kind of evaluate both the coaching and then also evaluate their teammates and their, and, and their own game um, from a mental standpoint, who are the most mentally tough kids, who are the most competitive kids. So to me, it's, it's, it's fascinating and something that I continue to want to learn about, Brian. Do you think it's nature or nurture or a combination? I think it's a combination. I really do. Like, I mean, I think that, like, who are you hanging out with when you're in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh? Like, I think that can really have a big impact on you. Um, you know, and then even with, with myself, when, when I was in high school in Ohio, my teammates were Scott Roth, who played in the NBA um, and also went into coaching. He was the D-League coach uh, recently for the Minnesota Timberwolves. He was an assistant coach at the NBA level. And Tom Tupa who played, I think, 17 years in the NFL. So um, when you're around people like that, it kind of brings or elevates the competitiveness and the will to win. Because we all competed against each other on a daily basis um, in three different sports for the most part. You said you'd love to learn more about it. Uh, there's a book called Top Dog, which talks about competitiveness. And the author of that is a woman named Ashley Merriman, who I just interviewed. And she talks about competitiveness in the sense of, um, you know, being your best, competing against yourself. But she also says something that I'm curious about because I'm not sure where I stand on it. And she basically just looks at the research and the science. And she says that the most competitive people are not competitive at everything. So you talked about your dad playing Pac-Man. She would argue that the competitive people are competitive at the thing that they do and the craft that they do 
but they don't exhaust maybe their competitive spirit at other things. And so I would ask it maybe for you specifically, do you find that you're competitive at everything or do you let go of that competitive spirit when you're, when you're doing some other tasks, maybe if you're playing tennis or golf or, um, you know, playing with your kids or I don't know, I'd be curious how you think about your own competitive fire and, and, and spirit. Yeah. I mean, to me, it doesn't matter what I compete in. I want to try to win. Um, I want to try to, you know, have the, you know, best basketball team I can have. I want to have the best social media that I can have. Um, from an attendance standpoint, like I want to, I don't want to just coach the team. I want to figure out how can I help or do my part to have the biggest crowds. Um, so to me, it's everything, you know, like to start the year this year was what could we lead the nation in? What could we be the very, very best team in college basketball? And it was defending the three ball. And so early in training camp, we tried to come up with as many techniques as we could to take away the three point shot. Cause we weren't a big tall team. We knew we weren't going to be a good rebounding team. So we wanted to dive into our team's mentality and team buy-in and so we picked an aspect of defending the three, came up with new concepts, new terminology that we've never had before, um, and, we, and we ended up leading the, the country in defending the three ball. So, and that, I think that's something competitive. Like we told our guys like, hey, so-and-so's catching us. Um, we've, we've led the nation for 17 straight weeks in defending the three. We, you know, we got to go from – you know, 30% tonight to hold this next opponent to 22%. So I think it's, it's the people I've been around, they're competitive in everything that they do. It's interesting because the two legends you've mentioned so far, and you've mentioned a lot of people that um, have done amazing things in, in, in basketball, but the two legends that I've heard you observe and learn from. You mentioned Larry getting there early in his work ethic, Larry Bird. And you mentioned Jerry West and his meticulous perfectionism. And actually I should give Larry Bird also this credit, which he also transitioned to being a great executive. And people forget was actually a very good head coach when he decided to do that as well. But I, I want to go to the Jerry West piece about maybe there's a dark side to this and um, him being open about depression. And you know, a lot of elite athletes now are opening up about struggling mentally and mental health. And Dak Prescott, the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys just said, Hey, I've been struggling with some depression. Kevin Love, we just had Paul George in the NBA bubble come out and say that he was struggling DeMar DeRozan. Uh, and, and I could keep going, but I, I'm so curious about when we are so competitive and perfectionistic and trying to get things to be a certain way, what do we, is there, is there a downside? Is there a dark side to that as well? Um, and so I'd love to just hear from you on that. It sounds like, Hey, you've, you've coached at the highest level the NBA. You've probably been through what they call like the NBA grind, like 82 games a season. You're traveling, you're doing that in college. People don't realize in normal times you got your season, but then you're out recruiting and you're flying around and you're doing all kinds of stuff. So I'm curious, you've got a, a front row seat to some of the best performers in the world, uh, some of the best coaches in the world. Is there, is there a potential dark side to having that will to win um, and perhaps that impacting other areas either of your life or even of, of performance? I mean, I think that, you know, anybody that's at the pro level or coaching at the collegiate level at a high level, like you're always trying to strike balance between, you know, family, being a father, being a husband, um, I think it's a constant struggle for any coach. Um, you read about football coaches, you know, that are in their office and spending the night. And um, so I do think like, you know, who is your wife? Is your wife giving you balance? And um, like for me, my wife checks me every day um, and, you know, says, hey, you know, we're, we're eating at six o'clock, be home at six o'clock, no excuses. Um, and so I have kind of a coach in my own home, but you know, I, it's interesting because I think that whether it's players struggling with mental health at times or uh, could be a coach, um, you know, it's probably a lot deeper than just this person's a competitive person or a, or, or, or a perfectionist. It's probably something that has occurred, you know, early in life or upbringing or whatever. But I do think like there's this whole other 
you know, facet that goes into stuff too, Brian, is when a coach isn't coaching, those it's hard to be happy too, you know, and uh, people miss the camaraderie and the bus trips and eating dinners with staffs. And, and then you look at players sometimes when they retire and how much they struggle when they retire and, and, and what are they going to do? And um, they can't go to the locker room and lift weights. And so I think there's this, you know, mental health aspect when you're playing and then there's also when a coach retires or when a coach gets fired, that whole aspect. And it's interesting because I didn't know how I would ever be able to handle not coaching because I've done it from such a young age. And um, when I got fired from the Sacramento Kings, it was three years. And for the two, first two years, I couldn't have been happier. I, I, I entered the, the media world which I had no idea what it was about. It was a challenge to try to learn when I could interject with the play-by-play um, -play man. And, and I tried to study everything I could from a broadcast standpoint. Um, but I was happy, you know, and then I got to that third year um, and I had dropped my, I was actually waiting to pick my son up at school. And I looked around and there was all these, you know, moms that, that, had Starbucks coffee and, and I was waiting 20 minutes in a line to pick my son up. And I said, you know what, I better go back and coach. Um, but I do think that there is that, you know, that mental health aspect that, that everybody deals with in the sports world. It's interesting. Cause I think of Bruce Springsteen, uh, the guy, I mean, literally called the boss. And if you've ever seen him in concert, like it's unlike anything you'd ever see. I mean, I don't know how old he is now, but he is just, a beast on stage and he does he talks about he really struggles away from the stage and when he's on stage that's where he feels most at home most comfortable there's a high that he gets an adrenaline uh, he's a performer and that's what he does and i think the key there is to not confuse what you do with your identity and who you are and i always use uh rob gronkowski and aaron hernandez as an example because both those guys played the same exact position on the same team six foot five good looking big strong dudes you know stars paid well had everything and they went in very different directions and i think to your point some of it probably has to do with their upbringing and trauma and the aaron hernandez documentary was just a fascinating fascinating exploration in human behavior um, but too often we do mistake people's identity as what they do and, and not go into who they are. Um, so as I'm hearing you talk, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that. I talked to an NBA coach, uh, gosh, it was probably two months ago. And uh, as we're recording this, we're still in COVID times. College basketball hasn't started up again from a game standpoint. I know teams are practicing now and, and going through that, but we've got a, this has been a time from, I mean, when was the last basketball game you coached? We, we, we beat uh, Vanderbilt in the SEC tournament the night that Rudy Gobert, uh, we were getting ready to go out, and there was six minutes before tip-off, and my son came running in, who's on staff with us at Arkansas, and he said, Dad, you're not going to believe this. An NBA player uh, just got COVID. And at that point, I knew that, you know, I knew we were going to be able or hopefully we were going to be able to finish our game even before tip-off. Um, and then at halftime, I found out that we were not going to have fans the next night if we were able to advance. Um, but we won the game. It was the last game of the night um, in the SEC. We went back and prepped uh, basically all night uh, for South Carolina, woke up the next morning, and we had a team meeting, team breakfast at 10 at 945. I got a phone call uh, from our athletic director that we were not going to play. And that was the hardest team meeting that I've ever had. Um, and it's still challenging to this day. I mean, you know, just to think about, you know, like I'm older, uh, you know, I had a great college experience, but to think that even a normal student, my son's a sophomore at the University of San Diego and like this sucks, man. Like his, his, you know, end of his freshman year, his second semester of his freshman year was taken away. First semester of sophomore year. I mean, you only go through college for four years and it's just so sad for the young people um, to not have a normal or what we used to know as normal because um, it's never, it's never going to be normal again. Just like, I mean, you think about 
you know, what happened, you know, think about the way we used to fly. Like I never went through security when I used to fly. And, and if I was going to go pick up a friend at the airport, I could wait at the gate. I mean, there's things that happen in our world and then we just never go back. It changes forever. And I, I'm, 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 I ask myself all the time, like, are we ever going to be able to shake a stranger's hand when we meet him again? Or is the handshake never going to happen? You know, in 20 years, people are going to look back and say, people used to shake hands. Wow. You talked about loving the winning, loving the competing. And so for the last six months, you, you haven't had that experience or being on the team bus or just the community. Um, you're used to being in an arena with fans and feeling like you're part of something bigger. And um, I talked to this NBA coach and it hit me. He said, I'm really struggling. The team that he coaches, it was not in the bubble. So he hasn't had the NBA lifestyle that he's so accustomed to. And he's been at it for 30 plus years or whatever it is. How are you dealing with that component? How are you managing that? Like the itch that I'm sure you have to just roll the ball out and like be together and see what happens and feel the ups and the downs and, you know, the experience, and the aliveness that you get with, with sport and with basketball. Yeah. I think because we had come off three NCAA tournaments at Nevada and there's no, like coaching in the NBA is awesome. Um, there's nothing like walking out every night, looking down the sidelines, seeing the world's greatest players, seeing a great coach um, playing in sold out arenas every night. But the NCAA tournament's unlike anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's the greatest feeling ever. And I got to experience two as a player, three now as a coach, a sweet 16 run. And I just felt so bad for our players to not experience that. So I think that, you know, that first few weeks, right when the season was shut down was really difficult. Um, but I, I do look Brian at, you know, like coaching in the minor leagues is hard, man. It's, it's hard. And, and coaching in Venezuela and coaching in Dominican Republic, that, that ain't easy. And so, you kind of just got to take each day with what, what comes your way. And so that's, that's been my approach um, is like, stop complaining. Um, we used a doc rivers phrase, win the weight that we talk to our guys all the time on our zooms for those three or four months when we weren't together. Um, so I think that like, it is what it is. You got to adapt. You can't complain. You can't feel sorry for yourself. And you got to get the best out of each day. And we've had some great practices right now, um, even though it's a lot different when you're taking time out to wipe the balls down and, um, you know, you're, you're weightlifting in smaller groups. And so it's a, it's a different world, but you just can't complain. I think, I think it's really important as I think about the last two answers that you've had to acknowledge that things suck. Like, I, I think when people just say, oh, this is a massive opportunity for you to grow and develop. And if you're not learning 10 different things, you're doing COVID wrong. It's like, there is no right and wrong way to handle this thing. And it's okay to say it sucks, even if you haven't had a friend or family member pass away, or even if you haven't lost your job. And I think when we don't acknowledge that stuff, it manifests in so many other ways and we can fake it, but at some point it'll pop up. And um, I, I just... I hope people give themselves some space to acknowledge it. And to your point, there are things that, you know, certain people are going through that they're not going to get back. Like I think of a high school senior in prom, like you and I both know like prom it's overrated. Like it's not that big a deal. Okay. But when you're a junior and you're about to be a senior, like you think prom's a big deal and you think walking across the stage and getting your diploma is like a huge deal. And you envision these moments. If you're an athlete, that senior day where you shake the hand and you get a picture, like these are things that people look forward to and they got stripped out from them. And I think if we're just saying it's really not that big a deal and you know, you're, you're this or you're that like, you missed the you missed the mark and there was a great video from the marriott ceo early when this stuff happened and marriott was going to have to furlough and pay cut and all this stuff where he was extremely vulnerable and he laid it all out there and said this is the hardest time that our company which has been around forever has gone through this is the hardest and like that acknowledgement and that vulnerability 
then allowed him to then say, and I believe we can get through it. And I believe we will come out of this and you can then be hopeful. But when you're hopeful without being honest and truthful and vulnerable, it comes off the wrong way. So as a leader where you do have guys that, you know, didn't get to finish their senior year the way that they wanted to, or you've got guys that are coming in as freshmen and aren't getting to experience college in the same way. And it's, it's very different. How do you approach the communication with your, with your staff? How do you approach it with your players, your community? How, How do you think about that stuff? Well, I, th- I think you're right, Brian. Like, so the one, the, the one good thing about being around the game from a really young age is like, you can't BS a, pl- a basketball player or a team, like their antennas are up on everything. And so like, if I go in and act like this is the norm, I know that it, when they're in that locker room, they're saying it sucks. And so you know, I, I think you got to be truthful with your team. I think that's how you build trust with your team is, is like, tell them like, like, Hey, like this is not fun to go to practice and then have your coach tell you to go back to your apartment. And for us to say, Hey, it's not a good idea to play NBA 2k with nine of your teammates. Can you do it remotely? That that's not fun. Like anyone that says zooms are fun zooms are the worst man like who that like it's it's terrible like okay a guy makes a basket now in practice and I can't go high five a guy and the most challenging thing Brian is in a practice when you have intensity when you're trying to get the most out of your basketball team and then they can't see you smile or laugh when something happens to lighten the mood like that's been the most challenging thing to me is is to say hello to a player before practice and he can't see you smile or not. That's, that's, that's really difficult. You mentioned Popovich earlier, and I, I would imagine Coach Egan has some of this as well. It's like they can be serious and you know, demanding and intense between the lines, but I, everyone that I've talked to, and I've talked to guys who've played for Popovich that have coached with Popovich, they all talk about how he also will go grab a glass of wine with you. He's big on breaking bread um, and how he builds the relationship there. There's a high school coach who I know, I think you're familiar with because Brandon Chambers coached with him, Glenn Farello and at Paul the sixth and Glenn can be hard on his guys. There's no question, but I have sat in his office so many times where he's chatting with the guy about something outside of basketball and cultivating a relationship with his, with his kids. Um, and so I, I would imagine that those little moments that often are organic um, that just happen because you're around each other, you know, in, in, in basketball, there's, 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 I'm going to say it, it's like busting balls. There's busting chops. There is a, like, there's a humor that goes on that, you know, Popovich talks about, if you take yourself too seriously, you're probably not going to work here at San Antonio. We want guys who have gone over themselves. Um, and so I would imagine that's been interesting for you. Um, I'm curious, because before we started recording, you, you mentioned going against legends like Bill Jackson. Um, you mentioned Jeff Van Gundy, Hubie Brown, these guys who are legend. You talk about Doc Rivers recently. We've talked about Pop. When you were in the NBA or even at the college level, there are times where I'm sure you look across the sideline and are like, yeah, this guy knows how to coach. Um, and I was interested when you started talking about coaching against Hubie Brown, for example, and how you thought about the chess match between you and Hubie and, and how you would approach it. So I'd love for you to share with our listeners how you think about coaching against other coaches and what your mindset is like as, as you approach it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, the NBA coaches are the best coaches in the world. It's, you know, I think college coaches are way overrated and NBA coaches are way underrated. Um, I don't think having coached in both levels, having been an assistant at both levels, it's not even close. Um, They know how to manage personalities better at the pro level. Um, There's way more late game situations. Um, so, So the Hubie Brown situation is I was an assistant coach for Hubie and we took an all-star team to Limoges, France. I saw how he pieced together um, from the very beginning, from the jump ball, uh, his late game preparation. So then when I coached against him uh, and he was at Memphis and I was in Golden State, 
I told the staff before the game, I said, if this game comes down to the last two minutes and it's close, we can't beat Hubie Brown because I know he is the world's greatest last two minute coach. And so I told the staff, like, we've got to somehow try to convince our team. We've got to put this thing out of reach before we hit that two minute mark. Um, unfortunately we play, I think it was a two overtime game and he just dissected us. Um, and so, you know, when you're coaching against these people, you understand their greatness. Like he was an, he's so detailed and has his team prepared for every late second, uh, game situation. Um, I mean, we even practiced how to miss a free throw. Um, and then tip the ball to a certain area to get a three. That's how detailed Hubie Brown is. And, um, you know, we, we talked, you know, before the podcast, Brian, even about, you know, Jeff Van Gundy. Coaching against Jeff is the most frustrating thing ever. It feels like he has 100 timeouts because every time you go on a small run, he calls a timeout. And, I've never seen a coach manipulate the timeout run game like Jeff Van Gundy could. You watch a lot of the NBA now? I still to this day buy the NBA packet um, so that I have the ability to watch. But in reality, I've watched more NBA basketball now that there's been no college at the same time. When I was in the NBA, I never watched a second of college basketball. I thought watching college basketball was boring. Pass, pass, pass. The wrong player shoots. Um, then I get to college, and now I watch an NBA game, and I don't want to watch NBA. But I have been watching during this playoffs and love it. And uh, it's been the first time that I've really, you know, dug in and said, hey, this is awesome. What I've been doing Brian, the last five years, the reason I buy the NBA package is I'll pick one team per year and I'll watch that one team as much as I can in no other NBA games because I want to study what that particular organization, coaching staff. Um, so I don't want to flip through and watch a bunch of different games. Um, one year it was the Warriors and I just wanted to watch everything Steve Kerr did. I went to their training camp. I took my staff to their training camp. Um, so, um, I'm not just watching games for enjoyment. I'm trying to learn who, who did you watch this year? Milwaukee, Milwaukee was the team. And obviously it's cause you know, I have friends on staff and some former, um, Nevada staff members are there. And, and, and David Mintzberg is one of my best friends was there. And, and now we've implemented what we call spread this off season. We've taken the Bucks spread offense and implemented it with our ball club. When you're watching those games, are you watching it as if you're coaching the Bucks? So are you are you watching it to see, all right, what is Mike Budenholzer doing to counter? What would I have done there? Um, like, I'm curious how you're analyzing it. This is always fascinating to me. I mentioned Glenn Ferrello earlier. I worked with Glenn for eight years, and I was blown away with Glenn's recall when we'd go into halftime. And the things that he would remember and the attention to detail for guys, hey, you did this, you did that. And I was like, are we watching the same game? Because I legitimately, Eric, did not see what he was seeing because all I was watching was like the mental component. So all my focus was on how are guys responding to misses, uh, trying to watch their body language, seeing how they were communicating with each other. We were literally watching two separate games. And I'll give you one other example. For a while, I had an NBA draft website and I used to watch on Synergy, which for those that are unaware, Synergy dices up clips of players. So I could watch Paul George, uh, every clip that Paul George had at Fresno State. And then I could create an evaluation based on him. So I literally wasn't even sure how good Fresno State was that year, but I knew Paul George. And so there's, there are options when you're watching a game as far as what your focus is and where your focus on. But as a head coach, it's all of that stuff. And so I'm always amazed. I, I think being a head coach is so tricky because there's so much complexity to go into what your focus is. When you're watching the Bucks, 
I'm curious, like, how are you watching that game? I'm actually watching it like I'm on their staff. Um, so when I'm watching um, the Bucks on offense, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, who should get the ball? Um, how is their spacing? How are we being defended? Those are the kind of the terminology I talk if my son's watching the game with me or if my wife is kind of paying attention. Um, those are the things that become important to me is like as if I'm in that huddle um, or even substitutions. I'll sit there and say, wow, why is Bledsoe getting taken out? He just made um, two great passes and, and had a score. So he's, he's affected six straight points. So all those things are kind of how I'm, um, you know, envisioning the game and seeing the game through that lens. Um, and now in the playoffs, and it started at the very beginning, has been trying to stick with the Miami Heat um, because I do think Spo is so good. And, and um, you know, I think that you can learn so much when you're kind of afar. Um, and then if you have the ability to have a friend inside that inner circle where you can kind of call and ask questions about what you saw the night before um, to gain insight to see, you know, how off you are or if you're, you know, was, was that play really designed to go to that player or did it just kind of happen that way organically? As a player, how, what was your mindset like? You said you played in two NCAA tournaments. Um, what was your mindset like as a player? And is it the same as a coach? Is it different? I, I'd love to understand how you approached the game mentally as, as a player compared to how you approach it mentally as a coach. Yeah, I mean, I think because I didn't play a lot and knew that I wanted um, to coach while I was a player, like I wanted to have the biggest role I could. Um, and so how could I do that? Well, I took incredible pride in making sure that my seven foot roommate, Scott Thompson, got to class, was ready mentally to play, didn't go out the night before a game, because uh, he was a WCC first team all player. He was drafted by Washington in the fourth round. Um, so to me, my role was like I took great pride when there was a timeout being the first guy off the bench and really, you know, pumping the team up from an emotional standpoint. Now, I, I mean, I played uh, every game my senior year and got in the game. Um, but did not have a significant, meaning top five, top six rotation player. But I didn't want to be a guy that pouted. I didn't want to be a guy that brought the team down. Um, I looked at my role of in practice, practicing harder than anybody, as really having a huge impact on our team. And I think now, all these years later, I, I still have a group text thread with seven of my teammates. Like, I think if you ask them, they would say I had as big a role as the guy that scored all the points or had all the rebounds. And I, I think that's what you that's a challenge for a coach is to get your team to understand that everybody's got a role and everybody has an impact. Like a walk on player who's not on scholarship, who has a bad attitude, can really sour your team uh, mentality and your team vibe. So, I just think it's, you know, everybody's got a role, but I do think get back to the playing aspect. My high school coach, Biff Lloyd, we played a faster style. Um, he allowed us to take some crazy shots. He just wanted incredible effort at the defensive end. And my high school coach probably has as big an impact on my style of play as anybody. I mean, I've worked for Doc Rivers and Chuck Daly and Mike Fratello. Uh, but a guy named Biff Lloyd that nobody heard about had an incredible impact. Why? Because I loved playing for that man and I loved his style of play. Why did you love playing for him? Uh, I think above all, he gave us freedom on the floor. He was really detailed in practice, uh, but he wanted us to play a cosmetically pleasing style of play. Um, and in Ohio, you know, back in the 80s, like high school basketball, there was a lot of discipline teams. There was a lot of teams that played a little bit slower pace. Uh, he was way ahead of his time. I would say my high school coach was, was probably like a Mike D'Antone at the time. 
Um, we played with great spacing. We ran to the corners. We took a lot of deep shots, although there was not a three-point line. Um, but he believed in that opened up the floor. So from a philosophical standpoint, um, we all loved him. It just wasn't me. Our entire team loved playing for him. Um, he played pickup ball with us in the summer. Um, he smiled a lot. He laughed a lot. He brought joy to the game. But none of it, like if he told us to do anything, like we did it immediately. Um, he was also, he had that balance of discipline and joy, which I think is really, really hard to find. You've used the word balance a few times. And you mentioned being home for dinner at six o'clock when your wife says, hey, we need you home for dinner at six o'clock. What are other things that you do to make sure that you're healthy? Anything intentional that you do to make sure that you're mentally where you need to be when you need to be there? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that um, every year uh, my family will be in San Diego um, and they laugh all the time because uh, we have a, a condo on the, on, on the beach and everybody, my entire family will go on a beach cruiser uh, ride, which is one hour from, board, from the beginning of the boardwalk back to our condo and I'll do it with the family. Uh, we'll grab a burrito as a family, and then I'll say, let's go do that ride again. And so my way to get away is to take three or four beach cruiser rides um, and just to get away from the game and be on the ocean, be in the beach. That that allows me to kind of re-energize. Um, my family loves it. I love it. That, that brings balance. Um, you know, and I think that through this pandemic, like, the recruiting and going out all the time, it's not, it's, we don't need it, you know, like it's, it, it's too much. And so hopefully other coaches feel the same way. Um, I think it's given us balance. I think that we're going to see coaches that are much more energized, much more mentally fresh this year because of the fact that we haven't been on the road all summer and away from our families. I think it's interesting. The NBA bubble is a fascinating experiment for basketball. And I get texts because everyone knows I'm a basketball guy. I can watch any basketball. Like give me WNBA, NBA, college, women's basketball, men's basketball, high school basketball. Give me some 10 year olds. Like I'll walk around my park um, and these kids would get shots up or I see a kid just, you know, dribbling. I'm watching their follow through. Uh, Dave Mintzberg's big on, on follow throughs. And anyway, um, so I, like I watch a lot of basketball cause I just love it. It's, it's easy for me to watch basketball, but I'm getting texts from people who don't typically watch the NBA saying, this is awesome. And I think there are a lot of reasons, but I think one of the reasons that's not being talked about is that these guys are fresh. Like you're getting playoff basketball, but not at the end of an 82 game season, you're getting playoff basketball after like a preseason and um, these guys have the energy and they're rested. And I think there's something interesting going on there. And I would love to see if there's any data to back up the quality of the basketball that we're, we're witnessing, because first of all, I think it's something that the NBA should be considering. I know there's a lot of money to be made from an 82 game season, but a 50 game season, I just think would be a better brand. Um, and then two, to your point about coaches, you mentioned the football coaches that sleep in the office is like a thing. Like I'm going to put a bed in my office and I'm going to sleep there. And football is the worst because I think football coaches do control. They get to call every single play. They get to write up a script. There's one game a week, the, the pressure that comes with it. And I've gotten to know a few over the years it, it is so massive, but uh, Bruce Arians was one of the first guys, the head coach for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to say, go home. Like, I don't want my assistant coaches sleeping here. Like go be with your family. Um, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think about what you said earlier though, about having so much detail about who you're coaching against. And I do think of a Bill Belichick who every single week changes his scheme to come up with a game plan for that week and what goes into it. And you talk to NFL people and they say, and Bill Belichick is at every senior somehow every senior uh, pro day to scout and to get exactly the players that he wants. And so I, I am curious about, you know, when you're on the beach and you're on the cruiser, like putting the phone away and how you shut down. Uh, and then I'm also curious about your staff. Like how do you still prepare and have every attention to detail and be somewhat neurotic and make sure you're doing everything you can while not burning out, while being healthy, 
Um, cause I think, look, it's something I, I struggle with. I, I struggle putting my phone down. I struggle when we go to the beach, like completely shutting down. Um, I'm not, I don't have this mastered and it's still a work in progress for me. I'd be curious to learn from you as someone who is uber competitive. Like, what do you do? How do you think about the staff? Uh, cause they have families, presumably they have, you know, lives. Like, how do you manage all that? Well, I think, you know, I think the big thing is like, how do you not spend wasteful time in the office? Um, you know, I've been around, you know, coaches that, that feel like, you need to be there at eight in the morning and you need to stay until eight at night. And my dad, surprisingly, people wouldn't guess that he never went to the office. Like he coached at South Alabama and he never went in the office. Uh, the coach that came after my dad a few years later, Ronnie Arrow had called me and said, Eric, I, I'm getting the files from the prior coach. There's nothing in here. There's no semblance of your dad being in this office. And I said, well, he never went in there. Um, he actually used a payphone when he coached the Albany Patroons. He used a payphone in the Armory Arena to make trades because um, he never went in an office there either. So I think that you can get work done. Again, another lesson from the pandemic. You can get work done remotely from home. I'm able to go to a beach and shut it down. Um, completely, but it, I do struggle. Um, and, and actually my wife is making my daughter and I watch a show, a documentary uh, on social media and the negative effects. Uh, and it's a fascinating show on how um, Apple and all these products are actually, they're designed to try to suck us in. Um, and it, and it, and, and I, I, I struggle like I want to see what's going on in real time, meaning what's going on on Twitter as far as newsworthy stuff. I'm not just scrolling through, but I want information, information on recruits, information on leaders, information on coaches. Um, but it, it's not healthy. And that's something that, again, my wife is trying to help me to this day. Put the phone down when you come home. Put the phone down when we're watching a TV show. Uh, but it is a struggle for sure. Yeah, I love, you know, people always say too much of something is a bad thing. And I think nothing of something is a bad thing. And for me, Twitter has been a gift because I learn, like I get, find articles, research, like all kinds of brilliant stuff on there. And it's a huge opportunity to learn and then connect. Like I've made friends via social media. It sounds insane to say it really does, but I, I absolutely have connected with people that I follow there and I say, Oh, I'd love to chat with you on the podcast. And then I get to know them. And, um, so, it, uh, first of all, that documentary is awesome on, on social media. It's on Netflix and highly recommend it. And it, it, there is an addiction that goes on when you feel like you need to use something and they're wired to addict, get us addicted to it. So I think it's, it's important that we all recognize it. And you said something earlier that I think is hopeful and I, I'm optimistic about, which is can the pandemic allow for sports to realize what do they need to do and what do they not need to do? And the power of technology now is maybe that you don't have to go in a plane. And as much as Zoom calls do suck, maybe you can have a Zoom call with a kid and have a conversation with him and connect with him over the technology. So the blessing and the curse of technology uh, is real. Um, I'd love to wind down with you and uh, just have you share what it's like to be at Arkansas. And you now have spent time at Nevada. You spent time on other college campuses. You spent time, you know, in Sacramento. You've you've been on other NBA teams as well. Uh, assistant coach, head coach, all these different, uh, you know, parts of your journey. And now you're at a big time program in a big time conference uh, on a campus that that really loves their sports. Uh, what's it like for you being at Arkansas and 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 talk a little bit about your experience being there? Yeah, I think from a, you know, being on a college campus, having been at, at LSU as an assistant coach in the SEC, I got a flavor for what athletics means on a SEC campus to the student body, to the fan base. Uh, but Arkansas is, you know, unique in it's the, it's the, it's the thing in the state. Uh, there's no pro sports teams. Um, the Razorbacks from every part of the state um, 
there's Razorback fans. And so there's a heavy spotlight on the athletics, um, you know, here at, at Arkansas. And it's really cool. And, um, you know, we feel really fortunate uh, grow, having grown up and spent most of my life in San Diego and then coaching most of my life, um, you know, in the West Coast. Um, it's, it's, it's different, you know, like we, uh, I wouldn't have envisioned 10 years being at the University of Arkansas, but it is really, really cool that growing up, um, that the three shirts that I love to wear, um, when I was in fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade were UNLV, UCLA, and Arkansas, um, because those were the three powerhouses, uh, kind of for my generation. So, uh, it's been really, really awesome. We have a great chancellor. Um, our athletic director, Hunter Juracek, is a great guy to work for. And the, the one thing, Brian, that I think is so unique is we kind of look at our program like an NBA. Um, and I look at, at jobs like that as well, meaning your, your chancellor, your president is like an owner. And your athletic director is like a general manager. And the success that you have as an NBA coach in reality, it's going to come down to ownership and it's going to come down to your general manager. It's the same thing at the collegiate level. It's going to come down to who is the chancellor president, who is the athletic director, and then what are the facilities like? Um, and we feel like all those are in place here at Arkansas. It's interesting because you mentioned Arkansas being a part of your childhood. I'm sure you hear this from people that are my age, uh, you know, mid thirties, late thirties. Um, we grew up with, uh, video game it was a co NCAA college basketball game and Arkansas was Corey Beck, Scotty Thurman. Of course it was, it was not actually them in the video game, which is a conversation for another day, but it was, you know, Corliss Williams and Scotty Thurman, Corey Beck. Those are the three guys I remember. I'm sure there are other guys and they were dominant in that game. Um, and so for people my age, that's what we, we go right to that college basketball video game and playing with Arkansas was always an unfair advantage to have. Um, coach, this has been a lot of fun. If people want to learn more about what you all are doing at Arkansas, uh, obviously you're on, or you're on Twitter, um, let people know where they can find you. Yeah. Um, Eric P. Musselman is, uh, is, is my Twitter and, we have an Arkansas Razorbacks recruiting uh, Twitter site as well as our main Arkansas basketball site. And we try, Brian, to be a little bit different on social media. Like we try to open up the curtain and let people see behind the scenes. It, it opens up a little bit of vulnerability for us um, to be that, um, you know, on the, on the cutting edge, so to speak, with social media. But we feel it really helps recruiting-wise and, and, and certainly our fan base wants to try to get as much information as they possibly can. Awesome. Well, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and uh, coach, thanks for coming on the podcast. Looking forward to meeting you in person at some point and uh, looking forward to seeing your guys fly around when the season does begin and uh, appreciate your time. And, and I'm sure we'll chat again soon. That sounds great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Keep doing what you're doing. Like your leadership podcasts are awesome to listen to. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What I've been doing, Brian, the last five years, and the reason I buy the NBA package is I'll pick one team per year. And I'll watch that one team as much as I can in no other NBA games because I want to study what that particular organization, coaching staff, um, so I don't want to flip through and watch a bunch of different games. Um, one year it was the Warriors, and I just wanted to watch everything Steve Kerr did. I went to their training camp. I took my staff to their training camp. Um, so um, I'm not just watching games for enjoyment. I'm trying to learn. <laughs>